0: Morning. It's good to be here today to celebrate, celebrate with you guys, uh, and oh, it's always good to celebrate all the good and amazing things that God has done, and uh, we should never stop doing that. Uh, I told you last week that today is our final Sunday in our Revive All series. Uh, next week we do kick off our new series. It's going to be called Dying Declarations. And we're going to be going through uh, the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. And so we'll begin to understand uh, better about how those things apply to our life, the grace that God has given us, but also um, how we need to walk and live in that grace. And so I really encourage you to invite your friends, invite your family, your neighbors. Uh, It's going to be a great time as we uh, dive into that series. Last week, we talked about God's order for revival and that it has to be his order and not our own. We know that when we are praying to God uh, for revival when we're praying to him to bring his life to us, we know that uh, we have to go through his process of revival. And he says uh, in his word, he talks about how, uh, and we talked about how God brings revival through brokenness, through surrender, through repentance and transformation. Uh, we talked about how we can't pursue a discount God. You know, looking only for the benefits uh, without the cost or the blessing without Uh, the, the change that God is wanting to bring in us. We can't expect God to put the pieces of our life together until we are broken. We can't expect him to give us his life until we surrender ours to him. We can't expect to go from a place of death into a place of life without transformation. We know that God won't send revival until we confront our sin. Remember, Elijah had to go to Ahab and confront the sin, and God is calling us to confront sin in our own lives, identify it for what it is, call it what he says it is, and then allow that to break our own hearts toward uh, that sin that has been against him and ask him to come and change us. We know that we can't become so well-adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. We must choose God over, above, and instead of the world, and abandon uh, you know, ungodliness and worldliness in every aspect of our life. We talked about how that if we don't address sin, our worship means and accomplishes nothing. When God, uh, or rather when Elijah went to the mountain and he uh, called to God to send fire, remember he had to build the altar, he had to rebuild the altar before that could happen so that the sin of the people could be addressed through a sacrifice. They had been worshiping God without addressing their spiritual condition. They were denying how lost they were. And it's kind of interesting to me to think that anyone would deny their spiritual condition. The Bible is very clear that God knows everything that we do. It says that he knows every word, he hears every word, he knows every thought. His spirit searches the hearts of men. That means that even though you might not have acted out on the sin, God knows where your mind is, he knows what you're thinking, he knows where your spirit is wanting to go. And so for us to stand here today and deny our spiritual condition is ludicrous. Because God knows where you are. He knows what you're struggling with. We must be transparent and open and honest with Him and acknowledge that change is required. I wonder if sometimes we refuse to walk in that change or refuse to den- um, accept our spiritual condition and allow God to address it because of shame. Maybe we are ashamed of our failure, we're ashamed of our sin, we're ashamed of that condition. And we don't want to acknowledge it. If we, you know, like an ostrich, if I put my head in the sand, if I can't see the problem, there is no problem, right? Well, there is a problem. And we have to allow God to address it too often in in that place where even we acknowledge our condition too often, we will then try to, you know, pick ourselves up from our bootstraps and say, well, I'm going to address this on myself. We think, well, I got myself into this condition. I'll be the one to get myself out of the condition. Faults. We will never be able to do that. God is the only one that can, can bring that revival. Remember, God's revival is God's presence being manifested among his people, his presence being in our midst. And it happens, he returns to us when we return to him. And trying to manage and control our circumstance is not returning to God. It is refusing to do so. And so as we start today's message in, we, we talk about how only God can bring revival. Let's pray. And as we pray, surrender our will, but also surrender our strength, our illusion of strength, our, the things that we think we can do for ourselves. Let us be so transparent and, and weak before God, acknowledging our own weakness and inability to change our own condition outside of just going to the Lord and giving him permission to do that. Let's pray right now and give this time to him. Father, we come to you and we worship you. Father, we know that around the world, around this area, God, millions of people, millions of Christians joining together. Lord, we join in that chorus in worshiping you. We surrender to you with them, God. We are united in your spirit as your body. Father, in this time, work in here. God, in the lives of those that are, are your children, your, your, the ones that are Christians, God, I pray that you would minister to them. Those that may not know you, may, those that may not have received that gift of salvation, let them hear you calling them by name today, God. Let them know that you are drawing them to you. Father, do your work in this place. We surrender our own will. We surrender our agenda. We surrender our... our power our own thoughts about what we can accomplish, God. We lay it all down before you. God, I just pray that you speak to each of us today. Make our condition so clear and make your will so clear that we know how to respond. I thank you for what you are going to do in each and every person today. In your name, amen. So one of the things that, you know, we we need to discuss as we talk about only God bringing revival is we need to realize that it's in our circumstance that God brings revival. And often those circumstances are beyond our control. There's more than we can handle. There's more than we can uh, address in our own strength. And King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20 found himself in one of these scenarios. It says, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with the, and with them, some of the Mionites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. So Jehoshaphat finds himself in a place where he is under attack. His people are under attack. There are enemies on every side, and they are closing in on him. Those locations, it's like they were here, and then they were there, and then they were right next to us. They are surrounding us, king, is what the people are saying. You ever felt like you've been surrounded by enemies? You ever felt like every time you look around, all you see are people that have set themselves against you? You ever found yourself in a place where your circumstance is overwhelming, where you look around and you say, there is no way that I can get myself out of this, where you just feel the burden of what is going on in your life? You ever feel like that? Well, if so, then you can identify with Jehoshaphat, It says in verse 3 that he was very afraid. It says that he acknowledged the fear that came over him. In verse 12, it says that he even acknowledged, he says, we are powerless against this horde. So I want you to know that when you are facing an enemy, when you are in in a circumstance that you, you can't overcome, fear is the natural response. But I don't believe any of us want to walk in a natural response our circumstance, because the way I see it, God's revival is when his power and presence are manifested, they are brought into our natural circumstance, and they produce a supernatural response that aligns with his spirit. You see, I think it's his will not for us to walk in fear, but to walk in power in those moments. I don't think it's his will for us to be afraid or to be doubting or to have worry or anxiety in those moments. Rather, I think God wants us to confront those situations with boldness, knowing that we are secure in him. That's a supernatural response in our natural situation, but that can only happen through him. I can choose, and you might say, well, I don't really have a choice. I just naturally am afraid, or I'm naturally worried in those kinds of circumstances. In the place that I find myself today, John, I am covered in burden. I'm covered in in concern. Well, listen, when you choose not to go after God, you are choosing that condition. We can't force a, a response that conflicts with our flesh in those times. Rather, what we must do is we must choose the Lord and allow him, through his spirit, to draw out what he has already deposited in us. A response that aligns with his nature and his character. In Second Timothy, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit, or a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love and self-control. Your translation might say. Sound mind. So we look at this and Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says, I remind you to fan into flame this gift. And where did that gift come from? It came from God. He, he acknowledges it twice. He says, this gift that came from God and God gave us the spirit. He says, it happened when I laid my hands on you, but it, it wasn't Paul that gave the gift. It was God through his spirit that gave the gift. And so we need to realize it is God, through His spirit that will give the same gift that He gave to Timothy, has given the same gift that He gave to Timothy. That is a spirit of power, love and self-control. But we need to, to recognize, there's an implication in the way that Paul wrote this verse. You see, he says that the spirit that God gives is a spirit of power and love and a, and a sound mind or self-control. And he juxtaposes that, he contrasts it to the spirit of fear. And so we can make the inference then that the spirit of fear is the opposite of the spirit that God has given us. So if the spirit that God gave us is power, love, and self-control, that means that the spirit of fear is weakness, bitterness, it's anger, it's selfishness, it's self-gratification, it's anxiety. Don't you see this is why the devil wants to keep us afraid? You see why the devil wants your focus on your circumstance and not on your Savior? It's because if you are in that situation, if you are focusing on the spirit of fear, that natural response, then you are not making decisions that are aligned with God or his word or his character, his nature, his spirit. What you are doing is you are being led away from God and leading others away from God yourself because you're giving in to the fear that the devil wants you to give into, instead of allowing God's spirit that has been deposited in you to overcome that situation. This is why we must be aware. We must fight back. We must give in to the Lord. How can we deal with this? What will God do? How will he address this situation? How does he overcome that fear? His word in 1 John is, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, when John is writing this, the perfect love that he is talking about casts out fear. And he says the source of that fear is judgment. And he's not talking about the judgment that you would experience from another person, the criticism from uh, you know, a coworker or even a family member or a friend or, or, or a foe, for that matter. He's talking about eternal judgment. He is saying that fear comes from a place of recognizing that I will one day stand in front of a holy God with all of my actions, all of my words laid bare, and if I am not aligned with him, that's not going to be a fun experience. And he says that God's perfect love demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, Sacrificed himself on the cross, was miraculously resurrected on the third day. It is the perfect love demonstrated in that that casts out the fear of judgment. So I can stand here today knowing that, you know what? I have failed in my past. Knowing that I have said words that Jesus is going to hold me accountable for. Knowing that I have sinned, but you know what? I'm not afraid of seeing him anymore. Because I have washed, he has washed me in his blood. I have received the gift of his salvation. I know that I know that I have nothing to be afraid of because Jesus has borne my punishment. And it's because of that perfect love that the fear in me has been cast out. And not just the fear of judgment, but all fear. Don't you think if it's perfect love, it casts out all fear. And so this morning, how can I walk in that love? I do that by allowing or washing myself in the water of the word. In Ephesians chapter five, husbands are given direction. Paul says that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. And the reason for that is the church is called the bride of Christ. And it says that Jesus, he gave himself up for the church. And so husbands, you have to give up yourselves for your wives, even before they respond to you, by the way. That's not in my notes. You get that one for free. But, and all the ladies said amen. But, uh, but, uh, but then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wash her in the water of the word. So then if we are the bride of Christ, we know that he loved us. And then guess what? He wants us to be washed in the water of the of his word. And so I want to just I want to take you to Psalm 46 because in Psalm 46 we get a beautiful picture of God's power and his love for us and the way and the reasons that we don't have to be afraid. In Psalm 46 it says you can follow along in your version or in your Bible. It says God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. I want, to, I just want, I want you to understand what that verse itself is saying. He says, the nations are raging. There is conflict. There is strife. There is just, you know, so much war happening But God utters his voice in the earth. It all melts away. He is the one who is a sovereign. He is the one who is powerful. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Who needs to be still this morning? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, you want to walk in a supernatural response? Wash yourself in the water of his word. Apply the truths of that, of that psalm and every word that you see in the Bible to your life. God is our refuge and our strength. And Isaiah, uh, he reminds us that we are his redeemed and that God will protect us from the fires and the water. In Psalm 18, it says that he is our rock and our fortress, in him we find refuge and salvation. So if you're here this morning and you are feeling the burden of your circumstance, if you are afraid of, of where you are or what everything is happening around you, focus on God. Let him come in and let his spirit overcome that fear that is in you. In addition to being afraid, Jehoshaphat acknowledged that he was powerless. And you might be able to say, well, John, I feel powerless to change my situation. I'm in a crisis and I'm frustrated with my crisis. Well, listen, this might not make you feel better, but God allowed your crisis. And I'd say, well, why would you tell me that? Listen, God sees you where you are. First, I want you to know that. God knows exactly what you are going through. But he allows us to go through things that we cannot overcome, that we cannot do in our own power, to draw us to himself. He allows us to realize that we are weak. He allows us to realize that we can't handle it. He allows us to acknowledge that he is the one that is God. And he alone is God. Listen, it's in these situations that we pursue God in a specific manner. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about um, how the nation of Israel, they were, you know, dissatisfied with God in general. And we said, we want God in the specific. Well, it's in your crisis that you begin to pursue God in the specific. If you think about your life when you're not in crisis, when everything seems hunky-dory, everything's okay, what do your prayers look like? Well, you know, God, bless my family, bless this, bless, you know, it's It's very general but when you're in a crisis, what are you praying? God, save my grandfather. God, my children are in trouble. God, I have this meeting this week and I need you to touch me. God, my marriage, Lord, come in and produce just your love in the the relationship that I have. Your prayers get specific when you are in crisis. God says, I'm gonna let the crisis come because then you will pursue me. But it's in that place that we must acknowledge that he is the one that can help. And this is what Jehoshaphat did. In verse 12, he says, "O oh God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you." So we see this and he he says, "I'm powerless. I'm afraid." I don't know what to do. Even if I did know what to do, I couldn't change the situation. But our eyes are on you. That's the key. That's the key. And and, and the word but is just as important as the description of his focus. Because what Jehoshaphat is saying, he says, despite... My circumstance, despite being under attack, despite having a burden, despite looking around and finding only enemies, God, I choose not to focus on that, but I choose to focus on you. How would your life change today, right now, if you took your eyes off of your circumstance and started focusing on your Savior? How would your life change? I think about Peter. They had been watching Jesus. He had fed the, the thousands of people and then the disciples are on the boat and they're in the middle of, of the lake and Jesus comes across in the middle of the night. They're in a storm. They're afraid. And Peter says, if it's you, Jesus, call me out. And Jesus says, come on, man, the water's fine. Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk to Jesus and he realizes something. Oh, my feet, they're wet. These waves, they're to hit my knees and my hips and man what am I doing I'm walking I'm walking on on water I'm standing on water and I'm in the middle of a storm and and I can't do this and all of a sudden he's drowning he's falling into the water and what does he do he had taken his eyes off of Jesus and then when he realized his circumstance did he try to swim no what did he do Jesus he cries out to Jesus that's all he did And it says in that moment, they were where they were meant to be. See, when we are in the middle of a storm, when we are in the middle of something that we can't overcome, when we're facing the enemy, God says, don't look at that, look at me, focus on me. Know that I am with you. You are not alone. We must make him our focus. We must relinquish our own control in that situation. In Matthew chapter 5 Uh, In the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, and this is from the message. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Ever been at the end of your rope? Are you tired of holding on? Ever struggled just with so much going on and you realize, well, I can't change anything. I can't accomplish anything. I'm so busy or I'm so overcome. And what would happen if you let go? Are you afraid you would fall? What would happen if you let go and then let God take over? What would happen if you allowed him to control your circumstance? Don't you think that God is big enough to hold you in his hand while handling your situation? Don't you think he's big enough to do that? The Bible says that he holds the universe in the span of his hand. That means from his middle finger to his thumb, he's got the universe. He's got another hand that's big enough to hold you while he handles your circumstance. Let me tell you. Isaiah 41 paints this beautiful picture in two specific verses that highlight that God is big enough to handle our problems while keeping us secure in his hands. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, it says, for I, the Lord your God, hold your hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. I know, to me, this is, this is encouraging. Because to know that, that God is going to hold me secure in his hand and he is going to help me and he is with me, that's, that's, that's an encouragement to me. Jesus, in John chapter 10, at the end, he says that my children, the ones that I call my own, they are in my hand and no one can take them out. And he says, if they're in my hand, then they are in the Father's hand also. And you better believe, they're not taking them out of his hand. We are secure in the Lord. He can handle you and your problems all at the same time. In Matthew 5, it says that when we get to that point, when we are at the end of our rope, at that place, there is less of us and more of God and his rule. It says that when we surrender to him, when we give him control, there's more of him. It doesn't, it's not to say that he increases, he's infinite. There's no place or way for him to increase. What it's saying is, is that his presence increases in our life. Because we have now relinquished control. We have said, God, you handle it. You come in. We give him permission. We allow him free reign. Our girls have, or at least one of our twins has figured out how to climb out of her crib. The other night, uh, Samuel had uh, carried McKenna upstairs and, you know, tried to put her to bed, and we kind of thought she was asleep, and then he comes back down to get a drink of water, and like five seconds later, we hear this little voice, I woke up. McKenna had climbed out of her bed, found her way down the stairs, and was there to tell us that she had awoken. Now, if you go upstairs now, what you see is a very tall gate that goes before the stairs and then another gate that directs them from their bedroom to our bedroom and then another gate in front of her door, okay? So the reason I give you this illustration is because oftentimes in our life, you know what we do with God? We put up little gates. God, you just, you stay there. I'm going to keep you in this safe place. I'm not going to let you come into the areas of my life where I think it's dangerous because, you know... I can handle this, God, or I don't want you to handle it. But when we let go, when we are at the end of our rope and we let him take over, when we rest secure in his hand and let him handle our problem, it might not be safe, but let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. He will, he, he will be there. His presence will increase in our life. So my question is, let go. Where do you need to let go and God take over? might say, well, John, what about, you know, God helps those who help themselves? Listen to me this morning. That is not in the Bible. Anywhere. I've read it a few times. It's not there. Okay? And and it sounds great. You were never meant to help yourself. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells, tells the disciples, apart from me, you can do Nothing. Nothing. What that tells me is I need God for everything. There is no helping myself there at all. I need to surrender holistically every part of me to God. There's no control that I can have. Jesus says, if you want to be my friends, you obey my commands. You listen to what I say if you want to live revived. So we see that in this place of fear, we can go to God and his spirit in us that he has already deposited in us and given us can overcome that fear with power and love and self-control. We know that in the midst of our circumstance, we must go to God and look to God instead of our situation. What else can we learn from Jehoshaphat? In verses five and six, it says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms, over all the kingdoms of the nations, and your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So Jehoshaphat is standing. What you need to, to realize, he is standing in the midst of the entire kingdom. This isn't just a rally where a lot of people show up. It says a couple times in chapter 20 that every man, woman, and child was there. Every citizen. And and it's a serious situation. And what does Jehoshaphat do? He prays. We talked last week about Ahab and his failure as a leader to lead people to idols. Well, Jehoshaphat leads his people to God. He says, we are in a circumstance that naturally we cannot overcome by ourselves. We are facing armies on every side. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? He retreats to what he knows about God. He retreats to what he knows to be true about the Lord. He says, God, isn't it true that you rule? Isn't it true that you are sovereign? Isn't it true that you are all powerful? Isn't it true that all kingdoms on this earth submit to your power? He says, heaven rules. Earth never has the last word. You see, Jehoshaphat facing an impossible situation retreats not away from the situation, but into what he knows to be true about his God. He says, you are all powerful. You are the one who is in control. You are the one that I go to in this time. We must go and do the same. When we are faced with a circumstance, no matter how big, let us remember what is true about our God. That no weapon formed against us will prosper. That when we are faced with enemies, when we are faced with a circumstance that we can't overcome, that my Bible tells me that I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And it's the same that is true for you. That even when I don't feel like it, this is true. Even when I don't feel like it. And this is so important because we cannot let our feelings sit in judgment of our faith. It's easy. It's easy to be overcome with our feelings. It's easy. We've already talked about how it's natural to be afraid. It's natural to feel overcome. It's natural to feel worry and anxiety when we look at our circumstance. That's why we look to God. But in that place, we cannot let those feelings overrule our faith. Feelings have no intellect. They don't think. They react. Let me me prove that to you very quickly. You might be feeling bad today. You might be having a bad day. Well, if someone handed you a million dollars, I bet you would feel better. Am I right? Feelings react. Well, listen, force your feelings to react to what you know to be true about God. Don't allow your faith to react to what your feelings are telling it. Confront your feelings with what is true about the Lord. And in that place, what will happen is God will demonstrate his power. You will feel a sense of confidence rising up. And that's not confidence from yourself. That's the Holy Spirit awakening that spirit that God has given you, that spirit of power and love and self-control. Force those feelings to react to your faith and, your, and the truth rather than the storm that you find yourself in. When we think about all of this, Jehoshaphat, what he's doing is he is appealing to what he knows to be true about God's nature, about God's person. And then beyond that, he goes to what he knows to be true about God's history. In verse seven, he says, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He goes on, this is actually a a little, like a four-verse section And he continues to remind God about this situation. He says, when we came into this land, when our ancestors came to this land in in the book of Joshua, God, you sent these people out of the land ahead of us. Now, you didn't destroy those people, but you protected us from them. And he says, God, they are showing contempt for your mercy because you didn't destroy them, and now they're coming to attack us. But God, remember... You gave this land to us. You gave this land to us. He is saying to God, I remember what you did before, so I have confidence that you're going to do it again. In our lives, this is is an important lesson for us. This is why we share testimony. Because when, when you experience a difficult circumstance and you share what God has done for you, when I experience a similar circumstance, I can be encouraged about what god has done for you knowing that he will then do the same for me the same is true for our bible the reason that we have the bible it's a gift to us so that we can learn about the heroes of the faith we can learn about the zeros of the faith if they did it wrong and it resulted in wrath okay i know not to do that if they did it right and it resulted in blessing if god poured out his spirit then that's how we should proceed Listen, we, you might look at your life and say, well, John, my circumstances don't match what's in the Bible. My circumstances are different. Well, that might be partially true, but listen, your God is the same God. He is the same God. The same God that said, let there be light, he's the one that will speak to you today. The same God that walked with Adam, he's the same God that will send his spirit to be with you right now don't you think that in your circumstance, shouldn't we expect God to show up in our life the same way that he showed up in their life? I think we should. Are you having financial trouble? Don't you think Moses can identify with that? Man, the man was in the desert for 40 years. God just made food appear. He made water come out of a rock. The widow of Zarephath, we talked about her last week. Don't you think that she could give us some guidance about listening and obeying what God's word says and how he will, when we do that, he will provide? Maybe you feel like your life is out of control. Maybe you feel like everyone is out to get you. Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. And then in slavery, he was put in prison because of a false accusation. The men that were supposed to tell the Pharaoh about him forgot for three years. Don't you think that if Joseph were with you today, he could help you see how God's providence is through your bad circumstance to deliver something greater in the future? Maybe, you're, maybe you've heard God, but you're not sure how to act. You're not sure how to, how to follow him. Do you think Abraham can help you with that? Maybe your circumstance is so big bigger than anyone could ever imagine. You think David could help you go to the brook and pick up five rocks to carry into your battle? Listen, your circumstance might seem different, but your God is not. You should expect him to show up the way that he showed up. His word tells us that he will. We must remember this beautiful promise in Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured such opposition or such, uh, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. We must be encouraged by the stories of the faith because we can know that when we're in the middle of our circumstance, when we go to God, he will deliver the way that he has before. But what is the direction? How do we walk in that supernatural response? What does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, throw aside every weight and every sin that so easily and cleverly entangles you. And then where do you set your eyes? You set your eyes on Jesus, because he is the one. He started a work in you. He will finish the work in you. It says, think about him who endured such hostility, such rejection, such opposition from man for the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? It wasn't being seated next to God. The joy that was set for Christ was eternity with you. And it's because of that joy that he endured that that, that death on the cross so that he could be resurrected and be with us. And the word says, consider that so that you don't grow weary. Consider that so you don't grow faint hearted. Know that He is with you. So we look at this and we understand that when we are afraid, when we feel powerless, we can focus on God. He will allow that spirit in us to rise up, to be aligned with His spirit and nature. We know that we can go to what we know about God and wh- about who he is. We can go to what we know to be true about um, what he has done before. And then Jehoshaphat, he went to what he knew to be true about God's word. He says to God, God, your word says that when we pray towards the temple, you will remember us and you will deliver. He is reciting or kind of remembering what Solomon prayed in First Chronicles 6 when he dedicated the temple. In that prayer, Solomon said, God, when your people are out, when they are in battle, and yet they turn and they face this temple and they pray, remember them. Remember them. And that theme is not just found in that prayer, it's found throughout the Old Testament. I mean, think about Daniel. What did he do three times a day? He opened his window, he prayed toward Jerusalem, he prayed to where the temple was, and what did God do? He remembered Daniel. God says in his word that he would do it Jehoshaphat says, God, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you've done this before. And by the way, your word says that you will do it. He retreats to those things, those things that he knows to be true. He hasn't even told God his problem yet. See, in our prayers, it's like, we like vomit our problems on God. What if we talked to God about himself? What if we worshiped him? Let me tell you, in the midst of your circumstance, if you praise God because he is God, you're not going to be looking at your circumstance. You're going to feel differently about it. So Jehoshaphat, he's focusing on the Lord. He tells God, he says, I'm powerless against this God, but my eyes are on you. And then it says, the spirit of God fell on a man named Jehaziel, and he spoke. It says, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehoshaphat, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. How many of you would like to hear God say that to you today? How many of you would like to receive that kind of word from the Lord. But we need to be careful. It's easy to interpret a message like this wrong. I feel like what we have done in the past, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience here. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone except this guy. That when I get a word like this, that where God says, John, the battle isn't yours, it's mine. I interpret it to mean that God says, John, I'm going to fight alongside you. Is that what he said? No. He didn't say, I'm going to fight next to you. He said, I'm going to fight for you. How often have we misinterpreted this message? How often have we thought, well, God needs my help, so I'm going to do this. Abraham. He didn't have a son yet. God promised him a son. Well, God must need my help. Hagar, come into my tent. We are paying for that decision. We are paying for that decision. God doesn't need your help. His word isn't that I will fight alongside you. His word is I will fight for you. When we were doing our study on the armor of God four times in Ephesians chapter six, Paul says, stand firm in the armor of God. Stand firm. That's how we fight, is standing firm in the Lord watching him fight the battle for us, knowing that we are secure in his hand because he's got our problem in hand. I think it's important, though, that we realize when this word appeared. You see, Jehoshaphat, let me back up a little bit. This word, when we talk about the word of God, we talk about the Logos word and the rama word of God. The Logos word is the general word, okay? So the Bible is the general word of God. It is from Genesis to Revelation. It's God's word in total, okay? The Logos word. Now the Rhema word is the specific word of God to your circumstance. It is the Holy Spirit's job to deliver the Rhema word of God to you. How do you know that you've ever received a rhema word? Have you ever been in, in, a, in a sermon or at church and you're like, everybody else might as well have stayed home because the pastor, we could have just had a conversation. You ever been there? I've been there. You ever, you ever opened your Bible? Listen, there, even though this is the Logos word, it contains the rhema word, okay? You ever read your Bible and, you open, and you're reading and then all of a sudden, everything but one verse just whites out and that word just jumps out of the page and slaps you across the face with the truth from the kingdom of God? You ever been there? I have. God will speak to you. We have to listen. But but we cannot turn the pursuit of His word into our life. We cannot turn the pursuit of the Ramah word into an idol. Because I can be in the middle of my circumstance. I can be struggling with fear. I can be looking for all of that. And then I can say, God, and and just make that word the idol. I am pursuing that word more than I am pursuing God. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, Jehoshaphat, God didn't speak through Jehaziel until the people were making the focus God, until they were focused on connection, until they were focused on worship. They weren't pursuing the word. They were pursuing God. And then God spoke. In your circumstance, pursue the one who gives the word, and you will hear him speak. You pursue that connection with him, and you will hear him. And the way that God spoke, what an awesome promise. The battle is not yours, but mine. This echoes what David said as he ran after Goliath. He says, this battle is the Lord's. So I have an encouragement for you. I want you to name all of your difficult circumstances Goliath. Okay, name your circumstance Goliath. Not to remind you how big it is, but to remind you of the thud that happens when, when God is introduced to your problem. Because God overcame. And I think we have a problem in our lives. I love football. Football may not be the problem, but I think we... we we can learn a lesson from football. You see, a quarterback, he receives the ball from the center and then he's got a real problem. He's got four or five 300 pound guys that are out to kill him. They're they just like out to put him in the ground. And how many times have you watched a football game where the quarterback is just running around in the backfield and if you're anything like me, you are standing up and yelling at the TV, what are you saying? Get rid of the ball. There's this beautiful thing happens when the quarterback takes the ball and he finds a running back and he says, Here, you take it. You know what those five guys stop doing? They stop chasing the quarterback. They stop chasing the quarterback because the ball is in somebody else's hands. I think so often in our lives, we struggle to experience revival. We struggle to experience life because we are holding on to the ball. God, is, he sees us running around and he is crying out from heaven, hand the ball off. Give your problem to me. Let go of the rope and let me take over because I will introduce life when you let me have control. But you know what we do? Oh, no, 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 no. This is my ball. Right? This is my problem, God. You, you, you can't have this. Like, we protect it with our life. This is part of me, God. You can't have it. It's going to hurt too much. To tear it away. Listen, God wants to tear it away. Because when we let go that empty space that this pain was filling will be filled with his spirit, will be filled with his son, will be filled with his love. Hand the ball off, let go of it, and watch how God will change your life. After Jehaziel spoke, or God spoke through Jehaziel, something beautiful happened. The people, they began to worship. It says that Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of of Judah, every one of them, they fell to their face and and was worshiping God. It says the priests were standing and they were shouting praises and singing worship to the Lord. The next morning they woke up and they just went out shouting and proclaiming, great is the Lord, his love endures forever. Worshiping, just continuing in a state of worship. You know what though, the enemy was still coming. They were worshiping, although their physical circumstance had not changed. They could still look around and see their enemies. They could still look around and realize that they were under attack. But they praised God anyways. They worshiped him anyways, even though their physical circumstance, their natural circumstance hadn't changed. I want you to know that God responds to worship offered before our circumstance changes. You might say, well what am I worshiping him for? You're worshiping him for the handoff. You're worshiping him because he said the battle isn't yours, it is his. You're worshiping him because you put him into the game. You gave him the ball and you're cheering him on. God, you're an amazing God. I love you, your love endures forever. And you know what? In that time, it says that as they worshipped, not after, not before, but as they worshipped God, God sent the nations that were coming against them against themselves. He turned them into a battle against one another and the nation of Israel, all they had to do was stand and watch. They watched God deliver them. Because they worshiped God, (coughs) excuse me, before he changed their circumstance. And it says that after the battle was over and all of the armies were dead, they were able to go in and plunder the land. They plundered the armies that were coming against them. So my question today, (coughs) excuse me, knowing that only God brings revival. Are you focused on your circumstance or on your Savior? Do you remember God's nature? Do you remember his history? Do you remember what his word says? Have you washed yourself in the water of his word? Are you seeking his word as as the idol or are you seeking connection with him? Are you praising him? even though your circumstance hasn't changed. Listen, we're getting ready to, to take communion. And the thing with communion, it is an, a time for us to remember what God has done. Jesus even said that, you know, when we take the bread, he says, do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote that as we take communion, we are proclaiming God's, or Christ's life, death, and resurrection until he returns. This is a time of remembrance. What do you need to remember about God today? What do you need to remember that he has done? Some of this might seem foreign to you. Listen, I want you to know that if you are looking for hope, if you are looking for life, if you are looking for peace, it can only be found in Christ. God loved you so much and loves you so much that he sent his son into this world because he knew that without this sacrifice, all of his creation would be separate from him forever. God wasn't willing for that to happen and so he sent Jesus to the world so that, so that Jesus would die so that his blood would be shed, so that he would die on the cross, our sins could be washed away, and he would raise again, giving us hope for eternity. It is a gift, but we must receive the gift. If you've never received that gift, there is no better time than right now. In John chapter six, Jesus was Um, He had fed the 5,000 men, 20,000 people. And then overnight, he had gone to the other side of the lake. And the people, they were so enthralled with Jesus that they didn't go across the lake over boats. They walked around to find him. And when they found him, rather than being excited that the crowds were there, Jesus, like, he, he gets on to them. And he says, the only reason that you are here is because you're hungry. Not spiritually hungry, but physically hungry. He says, you saw me break the bread yesterday and you're asking me to feed you breakfast today. He says, if you want life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he turns around, 20,000 people have left and it's only his disciples. And he says to Peter, well, what are you gonna do? Peter says, where am I gonna go? Because Peter knew that it was only in Christ that life is found. If you are pursuing life outside of Jesus, you will only ever experience frustration. You will only ever be unsatisfied. When you come to Christ, is everything just all of a sudden turned to sunshine and rainbows? No. But you have the the hope and the peace to know that you are in Jesus' hands and so are your problems. I've told you about my grandfather and the situation with him that, you know, in December 10th or 11th, he had, you know, fallen again, and it was probably five or six times in a month. And so um, he had gone into the hospital to get checked out. And uh, from there, he was discharged into a rehab facility where they were doing physical therapy and trying to take care of him. Well, outside of a week, maybe a little bit longer than that, he had a blood clot that went from his ankle to his hip and i don't mean like a few clots i mean the entire artery that went from his ankle to his hip was clogged with like a single clot it was it was to the point where when we got to the hospital they were talking about situations that he could not endure he's 88 we didn't know what to do so what what else can we do we prayed and thankfully, the doctor that he had said, well, I want to try something that's less invasive, something that you know, would, would, he'd be able to endure. It wouldn't be you know anesthesia for hours and hours, and uh, he would probably be okay with that. I want to see if that works. And so he did that procedure, and he was able to resolve like half of the clot. But he was very encouraged, and he said, I want to, I want to treat it overnight, and then I want to come back tomorrow. I want to do exactly what I did again for the lower half of his leg. And... Of course, we said said, okay, and so he did that, and he was able to resolve uh, basically the rest of it along with a minor surgical procedure that took out the clot in my grandfather's leg. And so we're celebrating and we're worshiping God because he could have died. Five days later, he has pneumonia and is septic. And they tell us, you need to be prepared. The day after Christmas, And I I remember, I'm not looking at my sister right now. (laughs) I remember just the feeling of hopelessness, honestly. Like I I knew that if he died, I would see him again. My grandfather is a Christian man. I'm a believer. So I knew that I have hope to see him again. But I wasn't ready for that loss. And so we're praying and Carol sends me a text. He says, John, have you thought about taking communion with your family? Taking communion with your grandfather? And I hadn't, but it was a wonderful suggestion. And so I texted my family, and the next morning we are in the hospital room. Now, he was unable to take communion with us. He had not been cleared to swallow yet. But we are all there together, united in the Spirit, standing in the gap for him. And we take communion as a family. Let me tell you, like within a day or two, he's out of ICU. Within a few days after that, he was released from the hospital. He's still in another facility where he is getting the care that he needs. Now listen, it's going to be a long way, like a long road ahead of us. But for a man that should have died three times in a month to be where he is at, let me tell you, it is because of the Lord. It is because of the power of God if you need physical life, like healing, listen, you can find that in Christ. All of us need spiritual healing. And we can find the same kind of physical revival that my grandfather is experiencing. We can find that in the spirit when we take the life of Christ into us. There's no better time than now. Not one of us, not one of us is promised the next moment. I'm gonna pray. And while I pray, my prayer is that God speaks directly to you. My prayer is that every one of you get that rhema word, that God's spirit says, this is what you need to do. And that you don't try to help yourself, that you don't try to help God, you just simply obey. That you surrender to him, that you take your eyes off of your circumstance and run to your savior. Father, we come to you today I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he has done. I thank you for the sacrifice that he made. I thank you, God, for your son. I thank you for what you've done in, my, in Papa's life, God. The way that you have healed him, the testimony that comes out of it, Lord. But I pray that as, as I share that story this morning, that those that are here that hear it, God, that they don't hear me speaking, but they hear you speaking, God. That you, they recognize your spirit calling them, you drawing them to you. God, forgive us for the times that we have tried to maintain control. Forgive us for the times that we have focused on our circumstance instead of you. Forgive us for the times, God, where we have forgotten the truth about your nature, the truth about your history, the truth about your word. Forgive us for allowing our feelings to confront and overcome and overrule our faith, Lord. Help us, remind us, God, even as we take this communion to remember your grace and what you have done for us, your power, Lord, and how you have delivered us. If you are here this morning and you have never received that gift of salvation, take this opportunity. Cry out to God. Ask him, say, forgive me of my sins. Wash my sins away. Make me like you. Give me the life that only comes from your spirit. Teach me to follow you. Help me to surrender to you. God, we thank you for the work you're doing in this place. God, continue that work through your spirit. Make us alive because you are the only one that can. We love you and we praise you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.